pursue your purpose, speak your truth, deal with adult bullies, cope with failure, live beyond fear, establish values, set boundaries, move past trauma. These are all the themes in my Amazon bestseller, The Smart Girls Handbook. Tribers get in close. For 15 years, I have been searching for a book that didn't exist. So I am thrilled to share that I decided to write it. The Smart Girls Handbook is available to buy now from wherever you get your books and also in Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand and Australia. Everything we do is a response to something you have asked for and girl, have you been begging me for a book for years? Who is it for you? The reviews are outstanding. The press has been phenomenal and I am overwhelmed by the amazing support it has had already. This isn't my book, but our book. I realised after my talks around the world, women would be queuing for hours just to ask me one question. I didn't want them to just walk away, but to have a tangible source to have forever. And this is it. This is refreshing, never before read content that will inspire, motivate, empower, inform and entertain you. It's full of my personal development tips that have got me living as my most authentic and highest self, literally glowing from within. My most vulnerable moments and hilarious stories that will resonate with you. The Smart Girls Handbook is a celebration of womanhood and the book missing from your library. So grab your copy today, tag me on Instagram at smartgirltribe and I will send you an exclusive gift just to say thank you. Hello Tribers, recently a topic has been cropping up a lot between my girlfriends and I, emotionally unavailable partners. Wanting to get to the crux of this topic, I called in an expert, one half of BFF therapy, Mariah who utilises emotionally focused therapy to break out of negative cycles and conflict, to reconnect and restore a relationship. It was such a joy having her on, it is a very sex and the city type episode, minus the cocktails. It is full of wit, tangible tips and explores why and how we ourselves can be emotionally unavailable and why do we fall for emotionally unavailable people. Hi Mariah, thank you so much for coming on to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast today. I would love to dive in. Could you please explain to our audience what deems someone unavailable? Yes, Scarlett, thank you so much for having me today. Um, And so when I think about an unavailable partner, and I'm a relationship therapist at my core, an attachment-based therapist, um, and I do a lot of relational work and couples work, is you're really thinking about that partner that doesn't, um, for many reasons, have that ability to emotionally show up, be vulnerable, and really attune to their partner, um, or you know, partners, if, if you have multiple people in the relationship. Um, and you're thinking about that through, um, you know, there can be lots of like childhood trauma, there can be adult things, sometimes it's just sort of like a pattern someone has. But if we're thinking of sort of like, how do you get that like label, it's really, you know, people are trying to reach you. And instead of you working through whatever your stuff is to get closer, you're pulling away. And pulling away doesn't necessarily mean that you're like running away. It just means like emotionally, you're very much not present in your relationship, present in your own body. And that's really somewhat, and it shows up all the time in couples therapy as one partner is sort of like running, if you will. Um, And so that's when we're really noticing like, oh, you're right. You're unavailable. You're emotionally unavailable. And you see that I think a lot more in like early dating patterns more than like in you know, I mean, you'll see it in longer term relationships, but we're really probably today's conversation is sort of like how to recognize it like early when you're like just freshly dating someone too. Mm-hmm. 
are men and women emotionally unavailable for different reasons or similar reasons? Yeah. So, I mean, I believe, you know, in my work, I do a lot of intersectional work. I work a lot with the LGBTQ community um, and a lot with like same-sex couples too. And so I think, you know, when we're thinking about gender is reminding us that all of us have that masculine and feminine energy, but then also a lot of gender lies on, you know, identity, a lot, you know, on the spectrum. Right. Mm. And so when we're thinking about like men and women, like overall, <laughs> when we're looking at it, and then a lot of studies are really very gendered anyway. Um, I think men, you know, so I'm in the US, but like, I'd say like most sort of Western, you know, culture, or maybe just in general cultures are very much like socialized to not express emotion to be more silent. A lot of, you know, if you think about I have two young kiddos, I have a two year old daughter, and then a six year old son. And you see it, like people really interact with boys and girls so differently in terms of like emotional expectations. Um, And so I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with how kids are socialized more than just sort of like gendered, you know, sort of like gendered um, identity, if you will. But I would say in a big way, um, in the way we look at it in emotionally focused therapy is women, if you will, often are the pursuers. So, or even, you know, in same sex couples, the more sort of like feminine presenting partner is often the pursuer and so the pursuer is going after I want attachment I'm gonna talk to you about it like I see this in my I've been married for 10 years so like my own partnership right like I'm feeling something I want to talk about it. I want to work it out there's an urgency to that whereas men are often the withdrawers and so they're pulling away naturally so even if you have someone who's emotionally available there men are often going internal working it out ideally right (laughs) sometimes it takes a lot of couples therapy then doing the like this is what I'm thinking this is how I'm processing part a lot of men don't get to that part but are really you know we act like oh there's nothing going on in men's minds (laughs) a lot of times when really like there's just a lot of deep emotions that they've never been socialized to really you know it wasn't modeled by their own fathers to really show how do you do this? Like, how do you have these deep emotional conversations? And so I do absolutely agree in that sense that like overall um, men being those withdrawers like tend to be much more emotionally unavailable compared to like an emotionally unavailable like female identifying Mm. human. Is an emotionally unavailable person born or made, do you think, Mariah? Ooh, I feel like, I feel like it's, you're, I mean, I believe that like, depending on the environment you're in, your genetics are kind of waking up. And so, you know, I really do a lot of like epigenetic and sort of generational stuff being passed down those stories from your parents, how your parents were um, raised and how that influenced how they parented you. But I think, you know, in terms of born and made, what's modeled for a child in those really, you know, sometimes even pre-verbal years is like the critical component here, right? Like, were they not just directly taught, but were they able to absorb from their primary caregivers what attachment, like healthy attachment, secure attachment, um, you know, open conversations, intimacy in terms of, you know, not sexual intimacy, but in terms of just like feeling like, oh yeah, I saw my parents work through arguments. I saw my parents have deep friendships and this is what it looked like. I saw them show, you know, holding hands and things like that, but I really saw like what relationships looked like and how they were modeled. And so I think that sort of like born or made is like, no, the making, right? The nature versus nurture debate, like that has so much to do with like how people 
understand how they're supposed to be in relationship and what feels good and what doesn't feel good for them. Mm. We mentioned a second ago, we were talking about young boys and young girls and how they are socialized. Is there anything in a patriarchal society that we're doing maybe subconsciously that is treating men and women differently with regards to how they express themselves emotionally? Yes. Love that question so much. Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, both of us live in like very westernized societies that have lots of like underpinnings of white supremacy (laughs) throughout them. You know what I mean? Like in this, like, and so I think the big thing is that men are being socialized to be very, you know, so I would say like financial driven, right. Using this, like, you know, really like numbers based learning. I mean, even like sports. So my um, husband's a retired NFL player. And so like him, you know, even growing up, like he's super smart academically, has like, you know, advanced degrees, all this stuff. But like the primary thing is sort of like all these like very like striving things that people want to see. And so in this like patriarchal society is just really rewarding boys and men for that compared to, especially like in the sports world, if you think of just sort of like, yes, like brute force, don't do any emotions, (laughs) don't talk about all these feelings. You know, and I work, so my clinical work, I work a lot with high achievers, like high performers, high achievers, um, even within the couple, con. you know, most of my clients are doctors or lawyers, you know, or, you know, very shiny public people, kind of, you know, podcasters, <laughs> you know, things like that, who are just, um, even if they're female, who have really leaned into that, like very masculine kind of energy. And I think we live in the society that loves that, right? Like if you, we don't, we ask people what they do before how they're feeling, you know, we ask mm-hmm. people, you know, sort of like, tell me the shiny highlight flashy thing that you've achieved recently, which is very like masculine type stuff compared to like, tell, you know, could you imagine like, so I meditate 10 minutes every morning. I scream into a stream that's by my house, right? Like, I live in the Hudson Valley, so not in the city. And like, could you imagine if someone asked me about my day, like, how was your meditation this morning? Like, how was your like morning routine? And like, I was being rewarded for like sticking to that and being disciplined. But people will ask me like, you know, I work on a a lot of consulting. So they'll ask me about like, oh, how did that project go? And I think, you know, I'm a female who does a lot and people know that because I'm pretty public. Whereas like, you know, I would love to see our like men and boys being asked like these very soft questions as like that has so much value and we don't put a lot of value in sort of in these non-striving things. And so I think men really get this idea that like for me to have value and worth in the world with each other, and it's a very patriarchal society thing, it's around, you know, being the head of the household, providing for my family, the shiny car, (laughs) right? Like all of these very like money, money driven things compared to like, did you take care of yourself today? Like, were you gentle with yourself today? Why are some people attracted to unavailable partners? Yeah, I think it's less about the unavailableness being like really sort of sexy and more about us. Like, what is it? Because I could imagine most of us have dated an unavailable person, you know, if, you know, that's a very like umbrella statement, like at some point, and hopefully we ran (laughs) very quickly to be like, I don't need to fix that. But I think a lot of times is, you know, especially for women or anyone, it's 
what's attractive is maybe something that it does inside of me. And so they're doing something. So whether they're sort of playing a little cat and mouse game with me, whether they're seeming so sort of, uh, you know, sort of elusive and just like a mysterious and I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. Like I'm reading, a, you know, a really like steamy romance novel. Like I'm so excited, like, oh, you did text me this one time or yes, I'll come meet you. And like, you know, it's like, you feel like you're in a movie, right? Um, so I think there's an aspect of that, of like the attraction is far less about anything this person is presenting to the world and more about like, I have, you know, maybe I had a dad that worked a ton or was, you know, traveled or, you know, whatever they were doing or just wasn't around. And so my own abandonment stuff feels really engaged by this person, but I don't know that that's what it is, right? It's just feeling incredibly familiar. And most of us, our bodies love familiar like our bodies love things that we already know and understand you know in our bodies even though logically it makes no sense and you know I have girlfriends that you'll be like why like why (laughs) this Mm -hmm. like sure they're cute you sent me a picture but like they're doing all these nutty things like why are you staying in that and yet you seem so happy like that doesn't make sense so it's like a lot of times it's like these weird self-sabotage things that like your logical fully functional adult brain is able to be like yes I don't like that they seem like really dodgy and canceling on me all the time, but then they do make plans and it's so exciting and I feel so special, but it's more like you just feel special because they've ghosted you twice, you know, like it, or I just wrote my next column for Refinery29 and the question is about like, do I go back to my ex who ghosted me? And it's like, no, why would you, but I'm in love with them. (laughs) You know, like, why would you do that? And I think it's sort of just like, that feeling of I want to go like I've accomplished something if I've like you know nailed this person down who seems so hard to get like I've Mm -hmm. like got some huge reward I feel like we need to clap to that statement I just feel like for women everywhere we need to highlight do not go back to them if they have ghosted you do not go back to them if they have treated you poorly do not go back to somebody who you wouldn't want your daughter dating. I feel like there is so much content, especially nowadays, around forgiveness and being compassionate and really overlooking the red flags when actually all of that's nonsense. A red flag is never going to turn green. I mean, can we get that like on a pin, right? Like, can we just like wear that around, right? Like a red flag is never going to turn. This is not a light. It's a flag. It doesn't change colors. Yes, completely. If you had to provide a list, Mariah, of typical emotionally unavailable behaviors in a person, what Mm -hmm. typical behaviors would be on that list? For anyone listening, thinking... I have no idea if my partner is emotionally unavailable. What would you say being the expert that looks like? Yeah, good question. So I think the top thing is vulnerability, right? So, and I think it's really important to understand that like attachment can change throughout your life as you, there's something called earned secure attachment. And so that means you've really done the work either in relationship or by yourself to earn close attachment and you can learn how to be vulnerable if it was never modeled. So it's not sort of like emotionally unavailable, people aren't sort of like screwed forever, (laughs) but you have to do the work. So I think the vulnerability, so when you ask a question or when something's going on in your life or their life, 
are they talking about it? Are they expressing that they're like processing some parts of this question or are they immediately either just clamming up not talking about it? Or when you ask about something, is there just defensiveness, right? And so that's all you're getting and you're never really like, you'll kind of walk away and being like, I actually feel like I know less about you, even though I, you know, like, oh, you know, you saw your mom today. I know that's really stressful. How'd it go? And then they just like, they're talking, talking, and you walk away and you're like, I mean, I know what you had for lunch, but I, you know, it's so like you filled it in with even some noise or then they just tune out and go into their phone or, you know, whatever it is. And then you feel a little bit murky and like that feeling. Cause really in any relationship, you know, romantic friendships, like after you have a conversation, the good, healthy relationships is I feel a little bit more connected. I feel a little bit more alive right? Like, I mean, probably more for extroverts and introverts, you know, in that, but you know, that main thing that you want to look for is, do you have any moments of vulnerability? And then on top of that, I would look for if your partner is pulling away from you, like what's going on? Is there a consistency to it? And are they just kind of overall kind of just like feeling like you can't reach them, right? So emotionally unavailable could be really chatty, could be you know, sort of seem really present to you, but you just can't reach them. And they don't, you know, they don't sort of offer up deeper parts of themselves. And a lot of times is that people actually aren't doing the deeper parts of themselves because it's been blocked through either trauma or, you know what I mean? Or like really low self-esteem sometimes, even though the person looks very like high achieving and pretty on the outside, but the self-esteem can be so low and they've tried to make up for it in all these other ways so that there's a lot of deep shame Right. So that can be a part of emotional unavailable. Shame is one of the biggest blocks to connection in relationships. Because instead of risking a conversation, being brave, that's really hard. You know, in relationships, what we really need is this willingness of like having the ego strength to be able to hear hard things because we're working, you know, it's two people's reality blending together. And so if you can't hear hard things, right, it's going to be like, that's another thing that makes someone really emotionally unavailable because you can never give them feedback. You can never just sort of say like, it drives me nuts when you do X, Y, and Z without them just like crumbling, um, you know, down. I think the crumbling is much more like feminine kind of energy too. Whereas like maybe a male is you give them feedback, they just get angry every time, Mm -hmm. right? So emotionally unavailable isn't just you know, quiet, you know, it can be really angry. It can, you know, when we're having a conversation, it always dissolves into a big fight. Um, Obviously, like if it's actually emotionally like physical or, you know, verbal abuse in the relationship, that is a great indication. Like that person's completely emotionally unavailable because they're not just talking to you about what's going on. They're actually like creating, you know, a really harmful environment. Mm. Why are empaths more likely to choose unavailable partners? Mm. I mean, I think the biggest thing is if you're an empath, you are spending a lot of time feeling, right? Like you're feeling connected, you're in in tune, right? And so in healthy relationships, you know, most of my close friends are therapists, super high empaths, right? Like I have a girlfriend who talks to me every day on her ride to work, right? And we can immediately be like, okay, what's like that deep stuff? And we can like hold it for each other. And it's like, well, this is one of my closest friends, Um, and we just like both feel so much better. And then days where we're like both busy in the morning and miss it, you feel that. Right. So, but I think in the relationship with someone's emotionally unavailable, what the empath is doing is they're 
tuning in to what they could imagine is going on for the person, then in that empathy is you've created so much empathy for this person without them offering up the actual vulnerability is that then that person gets to treat you however they want because you're always able to say, oh yeah, like you're, you're yelling at me because you grew up and your mom was so mean to you. So that when I give you feedback, you're just thinking about your mom being mean to you. She was so critical. And now I want to give you a hug because I know you're in so much pain. That's lovely. If the person is never saying, wow, when you're critical and giving me feedback, I know I'm really triggered and I'm in a lot of pain. And can we talk about other ways for you to tell me things? Cause I know that's really painful. And I'm going to take that to my therapist and I'm going to do all these things. That's the vulnerability. We want to be perfect for our partners. But I think what the empath does is then because I can understand what you might be going through and I feel your pain without you saying the words, it creates a lot of harm for the empath because they can then be just like raked over the coals by someone because they're not able to sit in like the holding boundaries part. I feel like for empaths is so hard, right? Because they're able to then sit in this pain with someone and not hold that boundary because they're like, but you need closeness. You need connection. You need someone to give you a hug right now. But that person, if they're not asking for all those things and they're not willing to like do the hard work, they're just gonna like, probably pretty much take advantage of that empath throughout the relationship. Mm, Completely. And I would love to unpack this. Why do women love to choose men? Again, it's almost a blanket statement, but on the whole, and in my experience, women love to choose men to fix. Why is Mm -hmm. that? Oh, we love a project, don't we? Right? And like the lower, right? Like our self-worth is, uh, I put this on my like Insta story the other day for BFF therapy, like the lower our self-worth is, the more we love to push into like, is there a checklist here? Could I possibly do what, like how many things do you do in your day? Right? Like if I'm feeling like I'm bottoming out, no, I don't go to a spa. I don't, you know, like I, I schedule those things, but in the moment I'm like, if I just get 12 things done, I'm going to feel better. And then I could tell someone about it and they'll be like, wow, you did a really good job. Look Mm -hmm. at you. It's that same, like super overachieving energy of like, I, if I don't like, I don't want to go deal with this stuff inside. Right. Like I can see, cause we can't see our stuff in front of our own face, right. Mm -hmm. It's too close, but wow. Like we, I can see all your stuff. And I feel so powerful being able to organize your stuff. I mean, I made a whole career as a therapist out of this, like a delightful skill set. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, and then what we do is then we're like, and if I could just fix it, I've done something magical because up until this point, all of your previous partners haven't like done the perfect little mm. combination of spices and I'll be the one and I'm going to be rewarded for being so special that I fixed you. So ultimately it's about me. Right. So like if we love a, and I have absolute friends who I'm like always date a project. And it's like, if you just date yourself for a minute and you're your own project. And if you go do that, you will stop picking these like broken or like half married or, you know, like all of these like super, like very much like outwardly, you can see how unavailable this person is like, not even like it's a mystery that you'll find out six months in, but like, you can see it from the Tinder. I'm like, Oh Mm -hmm. yes. Like one more shirtless bathroom photo like yeah I know you know because I have many friends who like you know I'm a relationship therapist so they always are sending me like the Mm -hmm. crazy date stories constantly Mm -hmm. (laughs) um 
but yeah I think the project part is just sort of like I get to be the one that has like the magic that can fix this thing and I'm gonna feel just so good and then like theoretically the reward would be right in this patriarchal society then they'll pick me and I'll get the ring they'll pick me and I'll you know what I mean like I'm gonna get like a tangible like reward from this not just like me myself feeling really accomplished we don't need to be the ones to save them you know, especially when people like aren't sort of doing the emotional available, like, mm. you know, intimacy part of it. Like, it's very different than having a friend who's like, hey, do you have some time? I just want to talk through this. I respect your opinion. If they're not like a taker from your life, you know, if it's also a friend that if you had a moment that you could do that, like, that's different because they're asking you mm. for that opinion. Or my therapy clients are literally being like, Mariah, what do I do here? And I'm like, this is how you do it. Sometimes people go and do that or not, <laughs> you know. But like, I think, yeah, like, I think we just like love being able to see the pain in someone and then being like, oh, I don't want you in that pain. Let me just send you all these resources to fix that Mm -hmm. pain. But people, you know, we're used to our pains. Like we're used to having this backpack full of stuff that we've collected. You know, we're almost hoarders of our, you know, pain points that once you release those points, like you're super naked, you're super mm. exposed. It's really scary to not function in the way that you like, you know, told yourself that like, this is how I see the world. This is my place in it. This is how I function. And so it's very hard to release those, but fundamentally no friend, therapist, family member is going to like have the magical word that's going to make it so that you stop doing mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. Can you explain how choosing an unavailable partner can also serve as a coping mechanism for some people? Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the biggest thing is we don't want loneliness. We're, you know, we're mammals at our core, right? We are, you know, in our genetics for millions of years trained to survive in community. And so if we can see a role in that unavailable person's life, right, and that coping mechanism around, like, can also be, like, I don't believe that I'll ever find true love. I don't believe that I'll have whatever fairy tale ending looks like. And so, you know, there's an aspect of just, like, I'm going to settle for this, but also, like, this does serve, you know, it takes up a lot of energy for me, you know, and time. So, like, I don't have to really think about my loneliness if I'm so busy trying to fix that person. And so, like, sort of that, like, yeah, it's not a drug, you know, sort of repetitively picking unavailable people that you can fix, but, like, it is a little bit because it's so distracting from your life. Mm. I have also read that sometimes we choose emotionally unavailable partners because if there is that distance, then we're not totally invested in the relationship. Meaning if there is abandonment or rejection, it won't hurt us as much. So how can Mm -hmm. someone listening to this get comfortable with the idea of being abandoned or being hurt as well? Yeah. Well, anytime you're in relationship with someone, there's a really good possibility it's going to end. It can very much be about, I don't actually feel comfortable getting close. And so if I don't get close, if I walk around with the belief that everyone's going to leave me, right? So maybe I had a primary, you know, attachment person, parent who either passed away or left, you know, or even, you know, I've had some clients that have just had really significant friendships and arbitrarily, like when they're, you know, before 10 years old, so young, where it sort of fits with like, this was my person, my closest friend. Mm -hmm. And then, 
they were mean to me and you know what I mean like not even like a death but just sort of like whatever it is I lost my community and so I'm gonna kind of never trust again is like this rigid thinking and I think what's really important is to remember when we are in these moments of very black and white thinking of like you know like I'm never gonna have someone and so I'm gonna settle with this or this is how I'm always gonna be treated you know like these like very absolutes and then even in arguments we can hear it and you know, I hear it with couples all the time, like you always do these things. A lot of times there's some deep attachment traumas, you know, and stories that we're telling ourselves that we're carrying over. And these stories are, you know, things like I'm unlovable or, you know, I'm, you know, beauty, right? Body image, right? Like I'm always, you know, I'm too tall, short, fat, skinny, hair's too curly, (laughs) you know, like all the things are getting, but like very self-worth related. And so I'm not going to really go through that like deeper work of getting close to someone. And so I'm going to really settle for like the relationship. If anything, like really serves me in that way of like safety, even though I'm robbing myself and, and this other person of having a potentially like close relationship that like sets your soul on fire. That really like is, you know, sort of lighting up your life and you can expand your life in that relationship. Mm. So for somebody listening then who is thinking, Mariah, this is my life. I have settled because I have this deep rooted fear of being abandoned and or hurt. What would you recommend their next few steps be? Yeah, I would go into those wounds. You know what I mean? Can you, as I'm sort of casually throwing out, like it could be related to this or this. Do you know what that thing is for you first? So even if you don't quite know how to like deal with that thing, are you able to trace it back and be like, yes, my abandonment stuff comes from this. A lot of times, you know, even clients who have PTSD, like, which are, you know, event driven, a lot of times though, when it's relationship driven, it's coming from a childhood wound. So think about your years, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, like those years really sort of expanding out from like that age six is like that really critical critical year in terms of attachment and like orienting yourself and ironically my son is six right now and I see it with his friendships like they're complex they're really deep the wounds feel really intense when someone feels like they're not included like all of us have that six-year-old selves inside of us do you have something that happened in these really pivotal years that then maybe led into why you stayed in that emotionally abusive relationship or why you keep picking this person, you know, cause I think a lot of times we want to blame it on like that first or second ex. And it's like, mm, but you stayed, you picked that person for a reason and you stayed in that relationship too long for most of us. Right. Like, and even myself included, right. Like, so I have an ex that I'm like, mm, why did I stay? It didn't make any sense. Like, so not logical and I'm like oh yeah like that's related to a whole bunches of other stuff from my childhood that I thought not so much like this is all I could do but I somehow thought like this feeling in this relationship was normal mm-hmm. right when it was an emotionally abusive relationship right like it's I was like that's not normal at all like that feeling just my body felt so comfortable with mm-hmm. so like starting with if you know one of the easy easy things to do is be like if this was your friend what would you be telling your friend, right? And most people are like, oh, I tell them to get the fuck out of the relationship. Like immediately, right? Like without hesitation. I'm like, okay, so let's start there. And then what like tender, gentle thing would you say to your friend who as they're sort of like figuring out how to leave the relationship or dating patterns, I would tell my friend this, wonderful. What would it be like to sort of pretend, you know, there's an empty chair um, thing that we'll do in therapy is like pretend like, you know, 16 year old you is sitting there, 
you know, and you're imagining 16 year old you who's maybe hypersexual or maybe feeling really lonely because no one's asking them out, you know, whatever it is, like, let's talk to 16 year old you. What advice did they need? You know, what do they need to hear? And you can, and that can be like a good access point. Sometimes in therapy, I'll have a client that is like, I have no idea what I'd want to hear. And that's when I'll go even younger. I'm like, okay, so you were very lost by 16. Let's go younger. Oh, you don't know here. And then it'll get back to be like, oh yeah, I just needed a hug. Like nobody was Mm -hmm. hugging me in my childhood. And it's like a really tender thing that feels like cliche, like therapy moment. But I think, you know, it's cliche therapy moment for a reason, because a lot of us just need safer attachment figures in our life, safer, you know, some people have siblings that were dealing with a lot. And then it was just sort of like, I was just quiet you know, I didn't want to do that, you know, so like not necessarily kids that have like these big sort of scary childhoods. And I think we label emotional abuse or um, big abandonment as like the only thing going on for why someone might have like, you know, repetitive toxic relationships when it can be these like very little moments where you weren't attuned to the people around you slash they weren't attuned to you. And so, and this is a lot of therapy I'm like throwing into like one question, but like, if you can also think about what were moments when you felt like the people around you were attuned to you as a kid, let's sit in those moments. You know, that could be as simple as like, yeah, nobody helped me with my homework and I was really stressed or I would come home from school and like this thing happened. I would try to talk to my mom about it, but she was always so busy doing X, Y, or, you know, everyone was at work or whatever it is. So I would just like go read a book or I would go play with my toys or I would just like go be by myself. And so instead of having someone in your life that helped you organize that and make, or even just say like, Hey honey, that wasn't you. Like that person's going through this or, you know, most of the time it's, you know, let's not worry about what other people think of us. Like if we all could learn that lesson sooner. Um, but then you're left, you know, if you don't have that safe person to talk through, you're left to sort of do this by yourself. And then our little kid brains don't understand the world. And so we're just gonna, only thing that we know is us, right? So we're only gonna add I, this feeling of loneliness. It's, it's me, right? Like it's something about me in this feeling of loneliness. And so that's gonna just lower self-worth. And so now you take that little kid who's understood loneliness through this one lens without having other adults sort of help them through it. And so I'm lonely, right? Here's someone who I think is available or here's a project or here's whatever it is. And if I always believe I'm going to be lonely anyway, it doesn't really matter who they are, right? Because at least we're going on a fun vacation <laughs> or at least I have someone I can take my friends like them, they're outgoing, like at least, you know, and then I think if we venture in and talk about sex too, like I think a lot of times people are having very disconnected sex because they're not in their bodies, they're not present. And then women especially are very accepting of having disconnected sex, I would say with men. So we can be really heteronormative um, and very performative sex because who talks to girls about sex, right? Like it's so taboo and like men can talk to Boys get talked to around like pleasure and things like that, but not really about pleasuring, you know, women or pleasuring a partner all that much. It's very self-pleasure driven. And so we sort of venture then into sort of like this lonely kid then had started having like disconnected sex and then is dating people that might, even if they're sort of like have, look like they're having their lives together and it's still really disconnected. And so then we, until people start like doing therapy and this deeper work, they're kind of, you know what I mean? They're kind of like, just like building this pattern of loneliness. 
There are so many takeaways there. So thank you for that, Mariah. What are some signs that someone is emotionally available when you first start dating? Because when you have those butterflies, when you're dating someone, when you have a crush, Mm -hmm. there's a reason why the term, you know, love is blind is such a cliche, is you are blinded. That's probably arguably when you're most blinded, if you like. So what are some very clear signs that the person you are going out with or going on dates with is emotionally unavailable. Yeah. So, I mean, I think clear signs is they're being just like really very like cloak and dagger around things. Like they're clearly not being honest, even if you're giving yourself a story to why they're not being honest. Like it feels really confusing to you of like what's going on. And then also if they're just not offering up any vulnerability, they're not, like, you know nothing about them, right? So you might know what they watched on Netflix or things like that, but you really know nothing about them. And then also emotionally unavailable people often, it's two pieces. Like they might ask you tons of questions about you. And so you feel great that it feels like they care about you, but they also then might always be just talking about stuff. And so they're not getting to know you either because they're not in tune with themselves enough to know like what would be a deep intimate Mm. conversation and so a lot of times people are really excited about like what they're doing with someone on those first dates you know what I mean could they continue the conversation you know it's like there's no crickets right but it's that piece of like but is do you actually progressively over you know we like to talk about sort of like the first three dates at date three do you just feel buzzy and excited or do you actually have some like deep closeness um and to try to like help you, you know, cause all the other stuff, physical stuff, all these other things sort of wear off, but the ability to do like a deep closeness, like that's what feels really good. But it's hard because when you're going from not knowing anyone to knowing someone like this person wasn't in your life two weeks ago and now they are, you kind of, we can trick ourselves to thinking I know so much about them. So it's easy to fill in a lot of blanks with just, you know, what they did at work that day. Mm. For anyone listening who maybe is still struggling, are there any characters, whether that be film characters or even a protagonist in a book, who you could pinpoint to as emotionally unavailable? Because I have found this a lot, especially with the media, that you could take mainstream television shows and films and you can pick out typically an emotionally unavailable man, but they build this romantic love story around him to the point that subconsciously there are so many women who are taking this on board and then they will. And this, you know, came up for me, this must've been a few months ago. One of my friend's sisters, so she is 15 And she said to me, oh, Scarlett, I can't wait until I'm in love. I want to go to university. I want to meet someone. I want to fix him. I want to help him with his struggles. And I just want him to completely fall for me. And I'm thinking that has come from somewhere. So are there any characters who are coming to your mind right now? My goodness, very on the spot, but also agree with you with that's coming from somewhere. I ask this for clients. I'm like, where did you learn intimacy like where did like where did was your sexual awakening right of like and it's media right like media is the biggest driver to like not just like sex sex like physical sex 
but of like, yeah, like your friend's sister, like got that, not from probably anyone in her life, mm. real life doing that story. Cause no one in their yeah, real life yeah. says that story, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like that's such a sort of like, you know, like very Hollywood driven narrative. Um, yes, yes. Okay. So, I mean, what, everyone loves Bridgerton, right? Like I feel like, you know, season two, I have questions, but season one that everyone actually fell in love with, right? So like, I mean, your main character is like the epitome of emotional unavailable and yet is also like the one everyone wants. But that feels super obvious. But like, I think there's a lot of in that sort of Prince Charming, you know, character, like, you know, also just like pick any Disney story, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't have to go to these like more adult complex movies that we can, I mean, now I'm thinking of even more, but like any Disney story, right? The main Prince Charming is like emotionally unavailable. It's, you know, right. As you mentioned earlier, sort of like, what is like our patriarchal society saying about emotions? No, it's go save the girl, get the kiss happily ever after mm-hmm. right and then some sort of trauma line in there so whether the girl has trauma you like you know there's some sort of trauma bonding in this you know childhood fairy tale here like major major messages that we're giving to kids and you know that's why I'm loving some of these new movies that like Encanto that are coming mm-hmm. out that really show just like complex family systems and trauma and how we heal and like mm-hmm. beautiful things but if you think of like the little mermaid like that right so you have like all of this other like the male prince is supposed to you know find a wife lead the kingdom girls are supposed to be pretty but kind of dumb she literally loses her loses her voice has to lose her voice to I mean that's just so clear that's not a film you should have your children watch I had it on VHS you know which ages me but <laughs> but you know what I mean where you're mm-hmm. like and that right, like there's just so much of that of like major trauma actually they're playing out in these like little kid Disney movies yeah. and very much of like and Prince Charming right and mm-hmm. Prince Charming has to do nothing besides slay a dragon for you which is pretty emotionally unavailable like why are you slaying a dragon mm-hmm. first like what what is going on that you think you should put your life at risk to go save someone you've never met, but not like in a beautiful way. We're not going to save like, you know, actual people in burning buildings. Mm-hmm. We're just doing it because like, I need a wife and I need to procreate. Like that is your reasoning. Like, mm-hmm. what are we teaching kids? You know, so, and then you have like many other, you know, sort of, and I love a rom-com, like really do, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like many other versions. Um, I mean, one of my favorite, oh my gosh, why am I spacing? It's a Steve Carell movie. It's like one of my favorite movies and it has um, Ryan Gosling in it. Crazy Stupid Love. There we go. I don't know. Me and my partner love this movie so much. It's like our background of just like we want something on that makes me feel happy. Mm-hmm. But like the both all the characters in that movie are pretty emotionally unavailable. But the Ryan Gosling character just like teaching, like doing this weird like adult yeah. grooming to have sex and like giving him his like swag he mm-hmm. never had but he has all of this like abandonment deep trauma from his dad which comes out in the movie right like all of that but for a minute there we're really like oh yeah I want the super sexy right like yeah guy who like she calls bullshit like movies honestly pretty great but <laughs> but you know what I mean like it's like that messaging of like he's a project still is like but all the men mm-hmm. in that movie are a project no, completely. And I think it happens subtly as well. I mean, just thinking on the top of my head, if I'm thinking of emotionally unavailable characters, they wouldn't necessarily have, the writers wouldn't have sat down and said, 
maybe in some cases they would have, they might not necessarily have written, we are going to create an emotionally unavailable man. They just create a man who then is emotionally unavailable and they build this entire love story around his broodiness. Um, oh, yes. like this. I mean, I'm just thinking Mr. Big from Sex and the City, Chuck Bass from yes. Gossip Girl, <laughs> Adam from Girls on HBO. Yes. These are not necessarily in that way progressive shows. I prefer personally the comedies and the rom-coms that are coming out now that are a lot healthier because we are showing this idea of, oh, women, wait, you're going to be saved. Someone is yeah. coming for you. And this guy might not necessarily be the healthiest. Okay, he might not necessarily be emotionally unavailable, but perhaps he's narcissistic. Perhaps he's toxic. But we're not going to display that because you're going to fall in love with him because he has slayed a dragon for you or he has built a home for you. Something like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, just all of this is coming to mind. So are there, is there anything that an emotionally unavailable person typically says that we should be calling Mm. red flags in your experience yeah um I think it's like the avoidance right so it's not even that there's like a perfect sentence that if they say this sentence like red flag right I mean I think if they're talking about past relationships and there's some consistency that looks like a lot of avoidance right but I think it's just like can they even answer a question directly like and really sit with it because I think if you walk into a date being like "Mm, there's something about this person I don't know you've listened to this podcast you're wondering and you ask questions like you know okay so like tell me what your childhood's like or you know, at some point you're going to talk about exes, but even like, you know, tell me about your relationship with your siblings. Right. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, something that feels pretty like G type of questions, like not overly prying. And if they're just really avoided and they just demonstrate zero insight, I think that is the biggest thing that you want to notice. I'm like, why does this person not have more insight into like it doesn't have to be a ton they don't know you um so I think that's the thing to look for um or a lot of sort of very defensive type answers so not defensive against you but just sort of Mm. like oh oh yeah you know I always date people and they like always you know when I was talking about sort of like these absolutes and I'm like yeah like I don't know why like oh women always do this right and you're just like categorizing people into like this bunch I'm like oh you must be doing something Mm. right that's you know or even like one will be like oh yeah I don't know like you know everyone always cheats on me like people suck like people can't be monogamous and I'm like that's like a great indication of emotional like unavailability for men and women is you know a you're picking people that like are willing to cheat instead of break up with you but also the emotional unavailable person is like, oh, but for whatever reason, they didn't feel safe talking to you. So they would rather not have a hard conversation with you because your reaction is going to be so much mm-hmm. that, you know, having anger, big crying, whatever it is, that they'd rather go find someone else to sleep with than have a hard conversation with. Like, that's a big, most of us, like morally, that doesn't really fit our like moral agenda. Mm-hmm. So if we're consistently doing that, it's like, I, you know, that's, there's something about the unavailable person in the relationship is it possible for somebody who looks for or chooses rather than looks for chooses someone who is emotionally unavailable to be emotionally unavailable themselves oh I mean I think that's probably one of the like besides the reason 
I think that's one of the biggest things. And I think most of us have a really hard time recognizing mm. ways that we're emotionally unavailable. And I, you know, cause a lot of times we can sustain healthy friendships and all of these other things. Uh, and I think also we all have moments where we're emotionally unavailable. And some of that is for really valid reasons of like, I don't feel safe here. I don't feel comfortable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, going back to your previous question around like, are we doing it because, you know, I have a fear of abandonment, break, being broken up with, getting hurt, getting cheated on, that person can equally be emotionally unavailable because they mm. keep choosing the unavailable person as like a delight. Because most people aren't consciously doing that, right? Mm. And so it's the emotional unavailableness in yourself could much more be just like, you are very ungrounded. You have, you know, you could read all the books, go to therapy, all these things, but like you are just not in your body. And so that's why I do a lot of somatic work. Um, and so if this is you and you're listening, you're like, ooh, I keep doing this. I think there's a me thing in here. You know, finding a therapist that does like somatic work is going to help you get back in your body. So it's not just like my body's here. I eat, I function, but like we carry trauma in our body. You know, our tiny brain is in our gut, like how we treat our body, nutrition, all these things. But up here might be really functional, but we're carrying this other stuff in our body. So if we're not like, putting these two together and really like having my brain and my body plugged in, then this high achieving brain can be out here doing stuff, but our body that holds all this other trauma isn't helping support this like brain and organizing it and the feeling, right? So you might not even be in touch enough to know it feels bad when mm -hmm. this person is defensive. You might just be like, oh, they're doing that. Instead of being like, you are in so much pain, why don't you think about how much pain you are in after these dates or after you sleep with, you know, at least I slept with someone, you know, and things like that. He wanted me. That wasn't sexual intimacy. You know what I mean? Like you're checking it off of like, they wanted to sleep with me because you have so much of your own like self shame around your body that that felt good. I feel like this is blowing my mind, Mariah. <laughs> I'm just listening so intently thinking, mm, I know this person. Sometimes we won't know if we are dating someone unavailable. So let's look inward. How do we feel if we are dating someone unavailable? I can imagine from just having this conversation, you're going to feel very confused. But then equally, I'm excited to ask you this question because you may say, well, if you're an empath and you consider yourself a fixer, you're probably feeling pretty good about yourself if you're dating an emotionally unavailable person. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think just sitting with yourself and thinking, you know, even when you're just texting the person, what's going on with your body? Is there any part of your body that's kind of humming and lighting up? Where is that body? Like, you know, is it sort of like your heart chakra that feels really open and loving? Or is it sort of like some deep thing in your gut that feels like it's wrenching you? Are you, you know, holding that tension? You know, you notice you're texting and like everything mm -hmm. feels tight, right? And so I think there's an aspect of like, when you're looking inward, a really, a place to start is to sort of see like, where am I carrying tension? Or where do I feel lightness when I'm around this person? You know, sometimes when we're dating, that sort of tingly new love feeling feels very exciting, where am I locating that? And then a thing to do when you're by yourself is to then be like, is there anything old and familiar around this spot? So, you know, one thing that might come up for people is sort of that tightness in the throat when they're around someone that even so like, yeah, up here, this was a good conversation. I, after this date, felt so much tightness in my throat chakra. I felt so bound up that, you know, I even, I'll, 
describe it as like I feel like I swallowed a bagel right mm-hmm. like very New York of me <laughs> but like you know like I'm just sort of like when you just like took that really big bite of bagel and it's not quite getting down but you're mm-hmm. not quite choking so we don't really associate those things with feelings all the time but to be like there's something you're not feeling comfortable saying in this person's presence even though your brain is like I love this. They brought me to that place that I liked. They planned this day. They asked me good questions, but your body's over here waving the red flag of like, you silenced yourself half of that time because you were too afraid, which maybe is a you thing. Maybe it's a them thing, but you need to pay attention of like, why did you not really show them who you are? You know, we all put on like the prettiest version of ourselves for dates, but like, they ask you a question that you're like, ooh, I don't know if they'll like my political beliefs. Let me not talk about it. Or, ooh, I do come from a messy family. I'm not going to mention it here. They come from a messy family too. We all do. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Like, but all of those little moments of when you silence yourself, I think that's one of the easiest ways to clue in um, and to really yeah. pay attention to that silence. Like, why aren't you talking about X, Y, and Z? What are some questions we can ask ourselves to know if we are emotionally unavailable? Yeah. Ask yourself, when was the last time you were really honest with a friend or a person you're dating or a you know, friend, family member? How scary would it be to talk to someone, even if it's just your therapist, about that thing? Because we all carry around some shame around something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's also just like being sort of in tune of like, what's all my stuff I haven't worked through? Why haven't I, like, not so much, what does it look like when I work through it? Because, you know, that's fun what's stopping me from starting to work on it? Do I have a, cause I think it's honoring the fact that we all have stuff, varying degrees of it, but we all have stuff to work through. Like this is the evolving, becoming functional adults, right? Like we all want to keep working on this stuff. And so are you doing it or are you not doing it? Um, I'm thinking of one of my girlfriends who she'll probably listen to this and hate it so much that I'm, and she'll know I'm thinking of her. Right. Whereas like, you know, everyone's like, you need to go to therapy and she's date. She will absolutely pick the emotionally, like knowingly pick the emotionally unavailable men. But yeah, she's not working through big stuff and she's actively choosing not to work through it. It's so wild for me as a therapist to be her friend sometimes to be like, you should just like go work on that. And she's like, no, nope. (laughs) right like and she just like utterly refuses and I'm like how like Mm -hmm. you know so I think there's you know sometimes we like know it's like so obvious it's not like this sneaky thing at all I feel like a lot of this really again talking for all of the women listening a lot of this comes back to self-love filling up your own cup it's about working through your own stuff because ultimately what I have come to understand is we choose emotionally unavailable partners because we are emotionally unavailable ourselves Mm -hmm. to some degree so I think a lot of this is actually hugging that it doesn't even have to be Mm -hmm. the child in you but giving yourself a hug and saying okay now is the time to heal now is the time to work through this I need to work on my body image I need to work on disassociating during sexual intercourse I need to work on when I'm dating or even on social media that I'm not displaying this perfect image of myself Mm. that you know asking yourself why am I avoiding having an honest transparent conversation what am I afraid of I think a lot of this really comes back to self-love and looking inward and as we said at the very beginning taking the space to date yourself yes So for everyone listening, thinking that sums it up really, 
in a nutshell, but where do I start with self-love? Because we've unpacked a lot. I can imagine this episode to be quite triggering, actually, for a lot of women, because it's the first... It's the first time I've ever really thought, oh, if you're choosing someone emotionally unavailable, it's because you yourself are emotionally unavailable. It's the first time I've heard that. So I can imagine for a lot of people, this episode is quite triggering. So for women listening in, thinking, okay, I'm about to put down this episode. Where do I go from here? How do I work on my self-love and filling up my own cup, being the expert? Uh What would Uh you suggest, Mariah? Well, I mean, I think it's okay to be like, we equally can't see our own stuff and we're also the experts of our own stuff, right? Like all at the same time. And so, I mean, therapy is a phenomenal thing. If you have the resources, if you're an environment, I also know it's like impossible to find a therapist right now. So I think it's honoring the fact that a lot of people don't have therapy available. I think listening to, there's so many good podcasts Mm -hmm. and relationship podcasts out there. Um, I love, I have a friend of mine who has a podcast called Connect, Connectfulness, um, and she's a relationship therapist, and she interviews a lot of people. Um, you know, I love, like, all of Renee Brown's work and her books, um, like, The Gift of Imperfection, so, like, one of her original books is a really good place to start because so much shame can be tied into that. I have clients reading that. Um other, you know, I mean, I feel like you could recommend your book, which is so amazing. Um, but I feel like there's like a lot of places that are in sort of like, yeah, the self-helpy world, but also just hearing other people's stories is really mm-hmm. great. Even like I recommend my clients read um, Love via Jai Jones book, like Fear Fighter Manual or like, the, oh my gosh, like those books are phenomenal because it really helps you move from that place of fear into, you know, like into like really doing stuff with your mm-hmm. life, but it has enough little very funny little things of you're like, Ooh, she read me a little bit, you know? So there's a lot of resources that are mostly free at our fingertips, but it's a matter of being like, I have this thing in my life. Let me just Google, right. Podcasts around abandonment. And you're going to get a bunches of things and like, start listening. Also journaling is great. Um, you know, I have a lot of clients who don't like journaling, but you can also do an audio journal and just get it out of your mind, bullet journaling. Um, we recommend, we work with teens as well in our office. And so I think it's great for adults doing, um, blackout journaling. So if you take a book that you don't, um, use anymore, read anywhere you would have donated anyway, right? Like I'll read sort of like the filthy, like romantic books and then be like, I'm not gonna, I don't need to put it on my bookshelf. And then you go through and you just like line it out until you see a word that hits. And so it's a blackout journaling. So less of like, dear diary today, I feel Mm -hmm. this way. And you're creating poetry. And I found like, it's really calm. I'll set a timer for 10 minutes. And then I read it back to myself and I'm like, oh, that helps me think of something else. Almost like I was in conversation with someone. Um, So you can look up, you can Google blackout um, poetry journaling um, if you're curious, but there's so many like therapeutic techniques, like right at your fingertips that can help you dive deeper into your own stuff. And the biggest thing with emotionally unavailable humans is that you're not sitting your own stuff. Um, The biggest part of my work, so my work really, I do intersectional work with clients. I do a lot of anti-racism and activism work, um, but I run sort of like from this place of sort of like my goal in life is to create more spaces where people can show up fully in themselves be really present. You know, um, I work with a lot of these sort of like non-dominant culture folks and then we don't have to like tuck and hide parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I think as women, we tuck and hide parts of ourselves for safety in so many environments, including relationships. 
And so, and then I do a lot of work on identity. And so really this identity work is exactly what we're having a conversation around today is what are all these complex parts of myself? So whether it's be my sexuality, gender, race, you know, I mean, you even described that you were born in one country and have lived in all these other countries. Mm-hmm. So that as much as you are, are like, you know, a white woman, cause I'm here in the States, right? So mm-hmm. like, I know it looks different internationally. You still culturally have blended in language. Oh my gosh, through so many different countries that you've picked up all these different cultures. Like, I don't know your story, of course, but also, right? Like that is a ton of identity work that you must be constantly doing. Mm-hmm. And all of us have different pieces of that. What if it feels really obvious of like you mix through cultures or if you you know lived in your same home, hometown, but the more we can do all of these different types of work and we all have this work, not just folks who are transgender, not just folks who are, you know, black or, you know, we all have this work, no matter how you're presenting to the world. We're all human. We are all human. We all need to do this work. And like, that's my biggest message that I try to get through in my work. So I do. So I think the reason why you probably found me is right. So is I have a monthly, um, relationship and sex column with refinery trip and nine, which I know they sometimes have on like the UK refinery Mm -hmm. too. Um, and I get so much feedback from people and I like, love it so much. Um, and so, yeah, so like your readers, like if you're thinking about something, like, please like write your question in. Um, and then we just, me and my editors, we just like pick a question every month. And the question I think you're responding, you probably read about someone who's emotionally unavailable. And then I'm thinking about it. So this month's column is also like me giving advice on, you know, how do we, you know, you don't need to go after all these other people. You need to start with yourself and is literally the advice I give them. And so I like, so my next column will have some tips on like, what are the questions you ask yourself? Um, and how do you like sit with yourself more is like exactly what I just finished writing about. <laughs> Wonderful. And finally, Mariah, what is your favorite quote or the mantra you live by? Mm. I mean, it's probably just kind of what I just said to you is like, is my, um, the work that I'm doing, is it helping people show up more fully in their full Mm -hmm. selves? And that is how I say yes or no to things. Because if people ask me to do stuff, you know, I could say, I mean, people are asking me constantly, (laughs) like, can you do this? And I'm an empath, right? And I can see how I could help but is the work that I'm doing with this person. So even like coming on your podcast today, which I feel so lucky to do is I probably, hopefully, right. Like here's a diverse voice, like for those, you know, you're listening. So you can't see, right. Like, so I'm a mixed race person who grew up in America. I'm black and Japanese. And I grew up in a very blended family and this is my specialty, but like I've now added a voice to your listeners that I wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise. So I'm so appreciative of that. And hopefully I've offered up some other, you know, expose them to some other ideas. Um, but like, that is sort of like what I live by in terms of like, and did somebody feel seen and understood mm-hmm. as they're listening to us have this conversation today? And if so, even if it's like one person, like worth it for me, like, that's like, that's what I jam on. Now you've provided so much today, Mariah. I'm eternally grateful. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you for listening to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I am your host, Scarlett V. Clark, award-winning founder and CEO of Smart Girl Tribe, the UK's number one female empowerment organization, host of this top-rated podcast, the Smart Girl Tribe podcast, and author. You are my community, my family, so come and follow along for more female empowerment and personal development in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or on Twitter or Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe.